Reliable communication channel. The guest on our show today is Ayla Dimiterko, a Ukrainian Canadian artist currently based in Glasgow. Echoing the fragmentary and porous nature of diasporic imagination, her interdisciplinary artist practice weaves together remedial forms of painting, moving image, dance, sculpture, textile, and text. Her solo exhibition, Liberate the Angel of History, is currently on view at Project Panji in Montreal. Ayla, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. Of course, such a pleasure. Um, well, my first burning question um, is about one of the first pieces that you encounter when you walk into the gallery, Warnings in the Weft, which is an oil painting with a carved wooden frame. Um, I recently started learning Ukrainian, but I was unfamiliar with some of the wording carved into the frame, and I was wondering if you could tell me what you wrote for that particular piece, but also maybe walk us through the show and paint a picture for our listeners of what your work looks like. Of course. Um, so the first piece that you're talking about in Warnings in the Weft is from a series of altar pieces. Um, that extend from domestic icons that you can find in Slavic homes. Um, to me, they represent double faith or syncretism that continues to persevere through kind of indoctrination, which happened in like 900 AD. So it's pretty amazing that, um, yeah, there's kind of elements of double faith that still exist. Um, so the icons that you see in the homes are often anachronistic, so they kind of span across time. Um, they're objects to me of living cultural memory. Um, where they are in the home is referred to as a red corner or a sacred corner. Um, so yeah, my iconostas draw on natural imagery, portals, dreams, notions of ascension. While reading um, a tr recently translated text which is called Iconostasis by Pavel Florensky. He was a priest and an icon painter. Um, I learned that icon painters are seen as kind of gatekeepers 
able to freely transcend between heaven and earth. They are chosen or special or divine. And so I think I was like reading about this because I am a painter and I think that painting as a field conceptually has always been a, like a side project that's interesting to me. Um, so yeah, while reading this, I thought it was interesting kind of the amount of ego that filled his text because he's saying that icon painters are divine, but he is an icon painter. Um, and the Catholic Church states that to manipulate an icon is to step away from its traditional appearance is like a blasphemous or heretical act. Um, and yeah, I guess there's something that I really love about this because I don't know, maybe there's a perverse kind of like anti that I always have in my personality and practice, um, kind of a counteraction to conservatism. Um, so yeah, I guess I've always been interested in stories that don't quite make it to like the Bible or like to the main, um, the main history that we hear. Mm. Um, so yeah, my back to the work, um, rather than portraying an idol, my icons carry motifs embedded within folkloric agrarian practices and rituals. As I wanted to give my viewers a place to slow down and meditate on the environment. So at the time I was really interested in kind of the anxiety that I think all of us kind of have deep in us about the environment and kind of the state that our world is in. Um, and yeah, I was reading a book that is called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell. Um, I'm not sure. Have you read it? Or do you, um, are you familiar with it? I'm familiar with it. I haven't read the book in full, but I've read some excerpts and I, I have a general gist of what it's about. But why don't you why don't you tell us what? Yeah, it's kind of I mean, it's amazing. I there's like it's really hard to summarize that book because there's so much in it. Um, I think that kind of the main message though, is that to slow down or take rest in order to contemplate action moving forward is just as important as the action moving forward. So there was something kind of in that text also that I was, yeah, I was thinking a lot about that because we were all stuck in contemplation during COVID lockdowns. So these kind of um, icons came out of that time of rest that we all kind of forced and got to have. And I felt almost shameful that I, I like, I actually, as an artist gained a lot from that time. Um, so yeah, to return to your question though, the, what's carved around the wooden frame is a phonetic Anglo-Cyrillic. Um, so this is kind of why even someone who is learning Ukrainian, such as yourself, cannot read the text um, because you're searching for Ukrainian words, but they're actually Cyrillic characters sounded out into English words. Mm -hmm. um, so I learned to read and write in Ukrainian growing up. I went to language school, um, but yeah, it re really faded as I grew up. Like I spoke it with my Baba, but she kind of spoke Ukrainian village, like small town Saskatchewan Ukrainian. When I go to Ukraine, it sounds a lot different. Um, so yeah, um, on this particular work, it reads, the land gives everything and takes away everything. Elucidate the wit, sanctify the spirit, clarify the intention. So this is an incantation that I wrote for my film, Rite of Return. Um, and yeah, there's something about the repetition of incantations that make them stronger. So I've actually repeated that incantation on the frame, like you saw it, and then also onto ceramics, 
and in film and in writing. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought it was a really nice entry to the show because it it does have a text, so it kind of like acts as a guiding force as you walk through the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I went and saw that show with a few friends of mine, and we all. Mm-hmm. We it just came up in conversation because I mentioned I was like oh this is my favorite piece in the show not that you need to pick pick a favorite piece but I for some reason feel compelled to be like this is the one that really draws me in and all of my friends were like yeah me too this is the one for really mm-hmm. oh that's amazing to hear it's yeah. f- that one actually has like a lot of energy in it so not only kind of like with the writing around it but um, it was quite multicolored. And then I left my studio because there was all these fireworks and like really like, yeah, lots going on outside of the studio window. And I was like, what's happening? Like, is it a special event or something? And I walked to Central Station in Glasgow and people were just like celebrating that the queen was dead. And I just kind of like turned around and I changed the color palette. I think that there's something about trying to like paint with stories that surround us kind of yeah trying to reflect like what happened and be able to tell stories through art is important um but yeah that's just an extra story that's why it's like red and purple like I've never used that palette before but I feel like that was like yeah there's like purple such like a royal or like we connect that to like royalty mm-hmm. and then red is also kind of royal but there was something about everyone like celebrating that in Scotland because they all are anti-monarchists mm-hmm. that I kind of loved or like wanted to embalm inside of the frame (laughs) yeah that's nice yeah purple was um a banned color for so long um like in eastern europe i don't know about eastern europe but i know that um i remember there was a period of history where it was you couldn't wear the color purple because it was exclusively reserved for royalty and so if you weren't part of the royal family and you weren't adjacent to it you couldn't wear it you know, Whoa, yeah. I've never heard that. That's really interesting. You know what? Um, I'll I'll look into it and I'll try to get I'll try to find exactly where I heard that. Um, but <laughs> I'll I'll find out. I'll get to the bottom of it. Um, I have a couple different tangents I want to go off of from that first okay. question. You mentioned the term double faith and I wanted to ask you what it, could you elaborate on what that means? Of course. So double faith or like a fancier word syncretism is kind of um it's parts of faith that are like mixed up so i think it happens in scotland as well and like ireland and in ukraine and i'm sure it happens in a lot of the eastern slavic countries as well so the those cultures originally were pagan or animist um and so when those cultures were indoctrinated by the catholic religion those like old believers were oppressed or that knowledge was oppressed. However, it still survived. And the church also had to use a lot of the same days and some of the same rituals to kind of almost get people to still come to church, I think. Mm -hmm. So for example, there is Ivana Kupula Day in the springtime. Um, That gets called St. John the Baptist Day in church. Um, and yeah, that's to like celebrate the solstice. There's jumping over the fire, finding the fern, um, floating wreaths down the river and Ukrainian people still do that. I'm not sure that it always is like exactly the same way. Um, but it has 
remained in the cultures for a very long time. Like I said, the indoctrination of Ukraine started in like 955 AD. It's a really long time ago. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's not even just the actual like acts or rituals. It's also just the worldview. Like I think about it a lot because I'm really animist. Like I really like a lot of my work and the way that I think I really imagine a spirit that is like living around us and there's also another idea in animism where our ancestors are with us all the time and so we're just kind of this continuation of like a very long congregation mm-hmm. um, and yeah like in Slavic paganism they actually did more about it so they would dress their table with an extra plate for somebody who had passed away and you know put three scoops of each dish into that at Christmas time um, you know like I don't go that far but I think deep inside of me, I believe that. And I was like, I wonder where that came from, though, because I went to Catholic school growing up Mm. and it comes from my mom. And so it's like it gets like she's also like that, like even just being at her farm with her, it's like she'll be like, oh, there was an owl here this morning. You know, I wonder like if she'll say like an ancestor, like I wonder if that was like so and so. Um, And it's it's not like she's not joking. Like it's just it's part of the way that she's always been. And so I think that's the way it passes down. Is like, yeah, like in everyday conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean that reminds me of myself. um, And I also have been wondering, especially I was just in Lithuania this last summer, and Lithuanians are very proud of being one of the last, like the Duchy of Lithuania being one of the last to be uh, Christianized. And so they were pagans up until relatively recently. And you see you see that in their integration where in the integration of like Christianity with their own pagan traditions. And something that's really interesting and fascinating um, are these crosses that you'll encounter just in the countryside that are seem half pagan, half you know, with a Christian motif, the cross but they're kind of personalized and they're wood carved and folksy and they reference the sun a lot of the time. So it's like, like kind of like what you're saying, it's like both are trying to coexist alongside one another in a very interesting way. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, that's just what came to mind. Um, did you have an icon in your home? Um, I have one in mind that has been passed down for, I want to say like four generations now. And I'm, it's, I have the privilege of being the caretaker of it. And it's of St. Nicholas, the, um, the saint of miracles and students and sex workers. So Mm, that's actually who my brother is named after. My brother's name is Nicholas. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, did you have one in your home or in your family that was not a proper we don't have a proper one actually there's it's like we have um yeah lots of like photos of ancestors though around that are kind of be- and then they have like a rushnik around them and so it's kind of this thing where it's almost like it, like yeah I guess there's kind of this praising of ancestors that's going on in my house but I'm also remembering that they did used to be more Catholic however my mom went through this phase where she realized that the Catholic church was really misogynist. So she's like, she only goes there to sing in the choir now. Um, so a lot of those things kind of came down. Yeah. But yeah, my Baba had an icon. It wasn't a fancy one though. That was like painted properly by an icon painter. It actually was like, what are those called? They're like, it's when the print you move it and it changes like position. She had one of those that was massive and it was of Mary. Mm. 
the big gold frames. So there was, yeah, kind of that like kitschy version of um, icon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my family is from very humble origins, so we don't have an, we don't have a painted icon. We have a gold leaf print. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. But um, yeah. Yeah. It's still really special that it's been passed down to you. Yeah, you know, I think I have a reverence of my ancestors as well that I've been expressing lately in like really special photo albums. I'm like also the keeper of all my family photos. Um, you know, anytime I visit home, I like I slink away a photo here and there. And over the years, over like the last 10 years, I have like a, a really nice collection of everyone in one photo album, which is really special for me. And uh, I'm thinking of this because just this last week I was working on this like photo album with my little photo corners and putting everyone in one book and it's been so nice. Yeah. And I wonder why right now I'm, I'm going through this phase. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really important that you're doing that though. Um, my mom is the keeper of the archive in my family. So I feel like I will become that. Mm. I don't quite have it yet, but before I started my MFA in Glasgow, I, yeah, spent like a month um, digitizing a lot of her archive so that I could take it with me to use for my research um, when I started the MFA. And so um, have you by chance heard of Annette Kuhn? Mm, no. She's, um, I think she still teaches at the University of Glasgow, but she, there's a, a book of hers called Family Secrets. Um, and I'm bringing it up just because I used it as kind of a methodology to look back at antique photographs and family photographs in my dissertation because I had all these photos and I was kind of like, I'm really interested in them, but I can't tell really why. Like I, And so it is like a four-step method that really teaches you to slow down. So again, this idea of like slowing down and really questioning what you're seeing like what is surrounding them, not only physically, but also contextually, um, what kind of photographic processes were available to the photographer at that time, who was the photographer, what was the photo taken for? I think often with Eastern European images, it's a moment of pride, like often at a wedding, mm -hmm. at a funeral, it's like a moment to like kind of be reverent. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that using that method really like expanded the way that I thought through them. I don't know, just a direction that you might be interested in. I like, I think Annette Kuhn is more of a moving image theorist now. So it, her work with photographs was earlier, but still really amazing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I was always kind of mesmerized that I had any photographs of my great, great, great-grandparents because it would be the whole family you have like the, do you have the physical photos yeah yeah wow that's amazing yeah yeah they're they're you know the only ones that exist so it's very special they're very precious to me but I think I um I have to agree with you on what you said about us being this like long continuation of the things that came before us and I think that's my interest right now especially in uh my ancestors and in their lives um, and trying to understand the circumstances of their lives. Um, it's because I think I'm trying to understand myself and my own role in right now in the present. And so I think in order for me to 
situate myself in the present. I want to understand the context of myself a bit better. And that's like, I feel like my parents, grandparents, great grandparents, etc., are the key for me to understanding mm-hmm. myself right now. Um, yeah. Definitely. I think it's, I think it's also really important for you probably as somebody who lives in Canada. Um, and I think about that too, as a Canadian a lot because of the amount of assimilation that occurs in Canada. Like I grew up Ukrainian dancing, like practicing three times a week. My brother is still a main soloist and my mom makes costumes for the group. It was like a family affair. And like, it's, it's kind of one of these things that I feel like quite conflicting about. It's like, I can critique it, but then also celebrate the fact that it did give me a community and all of my friends were Ukrainian dancers with me. And, but yeah, like the Canadian Multicultural Act got to really pick and choose what parts of our cultures that we carried. So things like dance or more of like the folk arts or like language classes are often really supported by nobody ever like told me about the genocide do you know what I like it's like there's parts of like the trauma stuff gets really buried and I think a lot of just like individual family stories get buried and then what kind of remains are these facades of culture that make Canada look like this like really beautiful multicultural blanket but I yeah I, I don't think that anything is like black and white like it's good or bad but I do think that maybe my own interest and maybe yours as well with kind of more personal familial narratives is is that you can go a lot deeper with them um, than a lot of kind of what is supported by the government. Like it's more expansive, I think. And I think to go deep allows you to find marginalized history and then you can kind of dig into it and bring it out. And then that parcel is kind of how you relate to other people around you so even you saying that I'm the keeper of my family archive makes me think about how it's often like females in families that carry those archives and I think that can be like quite cross-cultural yeah yeah definitely um maybe it has to do with the the crafts involved for me it's like scrapbooking photo albums embroidery Mm -hmm. um you know fashion like certain clothing Um, and I wonder, like, I, I have a sibling, a brother who very much identifies with the Lithuanian, um, nationality. And I think he sees himself in that. Whereas I see myself in my, in Belarus much more than Lithuanian. And and I think that has to do with him growing up in Lithuania. And I grew up, um, in Lithuania, but then I immigrated to the U.S., And it's really nice for me to hear that you had like all of these reflections and mirrors of your culture. Like you got to dance and you got to, um, and like your family was very supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think like imparted a lot to you. Whereas my experience was the opposite. Like I didn't see, uh, Lithuania, Ukraine, Belarus. I didn't see any of that reflected in my society at all. And that part of me really withered in my teenage years but then as an adult I think I got to rediscover it through like my trips back home and um through just like like books and and things that were then made available to me in films um and so it's it's like kind of like a homecoming for me to reconnect with that but it's I think this 
the more common thing that I hear is like people assimilate to the places where they move and they sort of, I don't know if it's a fracturing or if it's like they just let go of their past and it's a clean slate for them and maybe that's what they were looking for. But I think that yeah. that tends to happen more often than not. Yeah, I think that, yeah, with, I know that with Ukrainian people, I can't speak for all cultures, but a lot of the Ukrainian people I grew up with, um, because we are not a visible minority, it is easier to assimilate. And that is like, it's not just that the government was like, we're going to assimilate all these Ukrainian people. I think that there was like internally, like really wanting to assimilate because they wanted to be able to fit in and have a better life. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, yeah, I've, I've kind of like met with a few Ukrainian people that have come into Scotland now, like from the war. And I was having coffee with a younger guy and he's going to study at the Royal Conservatoire. I'm so excited for him. He's really into acting and is like quite young. Um, and when we met, he was like, when I speak English, do I sound English or do I sound Ukrainian? And I was like, you have an accent, like you sound Ukrainian. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And like, it's weird because I always wished I had a Ukrainian accent growing up. Mm -hmm. So, and then when I said that, he was just like so sad. His face just dropped and he was like, I really, really want to sound English. Like, I really don't want people to know that I'm Ukrainian. Mm -hmm broke my heart like completely yeah. but there is this um when you read it's actually Svetlana Boyum talks about it in Futures of Nostalgia about how the first generation to kind of migrate wants to just acculture themselves to where they are and then it's often the next generations that take on the task of looking back mm. um and that's just it's it, she compares it to um Lot's wife it's like if you look back, you'll turn to a pillar of salt. Um, there's kind of like a fear and there's like a want to get away from. So I think we're really lucky because we can look back, yeah. basically, in a more short way of answering what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. The privilege, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about your work some more. So I want to share the first time I encountered your work. Um, which was at an art fair. It was either Art Toronto or Material in Montreal, but I remember it was the Panjay booth, which was showing yeah, your work. It was definitely Art Toronto. It's like that is the only fair that my art has ever been in, and the only time that I've actually been to a fair. Mm, so it was like okay. my first, it was definitely that one. <laughs> yes, which makes sense because I used to live in Toronto. That makes sense. Um, right. You know, it's not the best place to encounter um, an artwork. I think it feels a lot like a bazaar, you know, there's just uh, a lot going on, but nonetheless, I was like transfixed by the work that I saw that was yours in that <laughs> convention center. Um, and I want to say it was the painting, A Ring Around the Sun and The Blizzard Rages On, um, because I really remember the frame, the frame was so striking. Um, there was, you know, the sunflower on the table, the lace curtains, the view outside the window. They all immediately transported me to the setting of like rural Eastern Europe and my grandmother's kitchen. And um, the frame that you use is made out of, I think, beeswax because I think like the smell is what transported me back to that place. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful piece and I think that I, you know, I saw your work there for the first time and then I 
I tried to find some more of your work online. And then I saw that like the sunflower, the beeswax, they seem to be recurring motifs in your work. Um, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. They are. I don't know if it was always intentional that they were. Um, but I also have known, I think that when you're an artist, there are emerging recurring themes and sometimes you're not completely aware of them or planning it that way. Um, so yeah, I'm, when I was, a, I guess with the painting kind of that you're saying it related you back to your grandmother's house, I was so touched by that um, because it's actually in my mind transporting me back to my own grandmother's house but that's in rural Saskatchewan in Canada. So there's something about this transporting of culture also rurally in different countries. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's growing up. Um, my dad would kind of just drop me off for like a few weeks. I think she really wanted me to be there. Um, and the town she lived in was called Ituna. Um, in that town, I think I've, I'm pretty sure most people that live there are Ukrainian. So the prairies were colonized. Um, the first wave of Ukrainians, there was 180,000 of them that moved there in the early 1900s. So my ancestors were kind of part of that wave. Um, however, people like me have left. So a lot of the descendants, um, and yeah, so kind of moved away from some of these agrarian practices. Um, and so the imagery that you're talking about with the sunflower kind of going down, to me that I was trying to remember these nightmares that I would have as a kid at my Baba's house. So I had really, really bad nightmares about the Earth's demise. Hmm. So things like sunflowers would anthropomorphize, kind of along with everything else in her garden, honestly. Like there was like cabbages coming for me at night. Um Kind of this like okay. revenge of the flora fauna going on. This is the stuff of um, Ukrainian fairy tales that my my uh, so half of my family is Ukrainian, and a lot of the stories and fairy tales that I would hear were Ukrainian ones. And yeah, like it's uh, maybe this was a subconscious or unconscious thing, but it's very common for especially cabbages to yeah cabbages to and real is, i think it's like if a story begins with a beat it will end with the devil so like really dark stuff that you read as a kid um so yeah i would wake up with these nightmares and my baba would practice wax pouring on my head so it was a bowl of water that i would put on my head and then she would heat up beeswax on the stove and then pour it in and she would mumble her incantations, which I don't know what they were. And so that's why I write my own now. Um, but yeah, it kind of, it curdles. And so I would look at it and she would kind of read it to me. And usually it would happen three times. By the third time, there wasn't as many curdles. And that's probably because I was sitting more still, to mm -hmm. be completely honest. But it looked like my fear. Like to me, it was the objectified fear. And mm -hmm. I would go out and bury it in the garden. Um, and so that was kind of normal to me, though. As for all children growing up, you just think that your childhood is what every childhood is like. Yeah. And then a couple of years ago, a friend of mine sent me a dissertation that was called Word and Wax um, by Rena Jane Helchuk. And it was a study of 
Ukrainian people in the prairies using wax pouring to heal anxieties related to land. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, my Baba used to do that to me, actually. Like, that was quite normal. Um, I just didn't realize that that wasn't something everyone experienced growing up, basically. And so I was also kind of simultaneously reading around the Anthropocene, kind of like concerns about that as an artist, um, thinking about the word, or like, it's like a neologism, which means it's a new word. It's not in the dictionary yet, but it's called solastasia. And so it's kind of this sense of anguish in relation to the decline of the Earth's ecosystems. Um, So yeah, I think my interest in wax kind of started there. However, the film that my first film that I made also had wax in it because I was interested in these bridal wreaths that are made out of wax. So I made my own out of wax. And then I got to Saskatchewan like last week and my mom unveiled her new apiary colony to me. And so she's also obsessed with wax and now she's going to be my wax dealer. (laughs) I don't know. And I painted with wax this year. I think that, I don't know, this is definitely a a theme for me that it's just there. Mm -hmm. Um, However, with the sunflower, I think that, yeah, sunflowers recur in the field of painting a lot. So there's Van Gogh, I think, is kind of the one that everyone thinks of right away. And I especially love this essay that George Bataille wrote about Van Gogh's sunflowers and kind of about how that represents anxiety or his mental state. Hmm. Um, I mean, they're the national flower of Ukraine. And then I think the sunflowers I love the most are Dorothy Tanning's, which are like domesticated ones. And they're kind of like, there's something like really like fearful in her paintings of femininity and like, yeah, domestic household scenes. So yeah, I think that all of those things inspired me to work with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, what you just shared about like the, the nightmares that you would have as a child and your grandmother is sort of trying to soothe you with the wax makes perfect sense for framing the work you know, like as a, as a container for the painting. Yeah. It's a really yeah, definitely. cradle for yeah, it. Yeah, they're really, they're quite ephemeral. And so I'm kind of, I think I might work with them again coming up because I've had to do some research about how to make them last a bit longer. Just I, the first time I showed them was at lunchtime gallery and I didn't intend that wasn't a, not a commercial space. So it was a, like a very discursive project that I had funding from Creative Scotland to do, which included a video and artist texts and paintings. And then I was approached by spaces to show them in Switzerland and Canada. And I was like, wait, those don't travel at all. They will break immediately. And so it also became a part of a performance in a way where I report them. And so the time in Basel actually was especially like intense because it was on solstice. It just happened to be that on solstice I had to repour these frames. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to find ways to work with wax that is less ephemeral, um, mm, more enduring. Yeah, I think there are ways though because I mean, wax museums exist with like the human figures. So I'm like, and like using wax as. Um, like death masks is actually kind of like the oldest form of wax sculpture. So, and some of those are still in museums. So I I think that there's a way I just have to figure it out. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't know, but um, yeah, maybe frozen wax. I don't know. It sounds just as fragile, yeah. but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, beeswax is also maybe it's just sometimes there's parts of us that are really cultural without us knowing. Um, but Ukraine is really like a lot of people in Ukraine are apiarists as well as farmers. Um, I am my friend Olia. In 2018, I went back to Ukraine to meet her family, and she's from Kulai, which is a village in western Ukraine. And her dad has so many honeybees, and he let me suit up and kind of showed me through his hives. Um, and the crest of that area, which is Venetia Oblast, is like a crest with bees. Um, and also, the very first agricultural science ever, like science department ever set up in Ukraine, was how to care for bees. So. <laughs> It's definitely like a thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting how these things get passed down because it's my dad's side of the family that's Ukrainian, and he also keeps bees and has done it for really. Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, cool. That's ten, amazing. Ten little colonies, and um, yeah, he doesn't even suit up anymore. He just raw dogs it. <laughs> yeah, just... my mom's like that too, and she just got it, and I'm just like, oh my, like. Yeah, I think it's all about going slowly, though. Yeah. So again, back to slowness and like pace. Mm-hmm. It's it, bees. If you make a jerky movement, they will start headbutting you. So you just have to go really slow. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like what you said about how the smell of the work. Yeah. Gave you an entry point. Um, yeah, I think kind of multi-sensory art experiences are like. I'm also like that. Like if there's a certain smell, it also will make me really remember it. And I've been trying to think about that, not just with the frames, but also with the way that I apply paint to linen. So I was working with Spike Lavender and lavender is a smell that always calms me down. And I think most people feel calm from that in aromatherapy. Um, And also trying to work with layers of beeswax at the end. Um, So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's working. Um, I'm, I wonder if my reaction to your work is stemming from my like my connection with it in such a personal way. Um, but, you know, I have to say that that's quite important because, like I said earlier, I had, you know, like a decade of my life where I just did not see myself reflected in the world and the culture around me. And it's so nice now that there is more. I, I feel like there's more visibility for other um, cultures in contemporary art spaces now and it's not it's not artists trying to assimilate and create work that's relevant to western audiences it's them creating work that is about them and so it reflects their own cultural background and that that feels kind of rare and unique um so yeah definitely i also i think that with the entry of yeah, seeing more diversity in contemporary art spaces with culture and also class, I think. Mm, like, yeah. I think that historically it's usually like upper class people who have access to being artists, and that's not the case as much anymore. Um, and I, I'm really, I really love people like taking things back. So there's a whole movement of trans abstract expressionists that, um, 
Amy Silman talks about it in her text faux pas um, and kind of the idea of which bodies get to do abstract expressionism. And I think with the show at Panger, the the works that are kind of, they're a bit smaller, they're like veering on abstraction, but they, they look more like cultural symbols is kind of a protest in a way for me. Like, I feel like there was part of me that was like, maybe to some people these look basic, but for me, there's like a taking back because a lot of abstraction was actually derived from folk textiles or like the idea of like the clashing of colors of folk textiles. So there's something about subjectivity that's really powerful in contemporary art right now, I think. Like, it's kind of like which body gets to do that and like, how does that change the concept or the story that surrounds the work? Um, yeah. But yeah, and it can be positive too. Like I feel like sometimes I'm on a similar path to somebody like Sonia Delaunay or Natalia Goncharova who were color theorists and also really inspired by folk textiles. Um, yeah, like uh, reading the exhibition text for your latest exhibition at Panjay was a little surreal for me because um, like I'm working on a doctoral dissertation right now and it felt like we are exploring a lot of similar concerns and questions. We're just doing it through very different mediums. Um, from what I understood of the text, it seems like you and I are both interested in the like acceleration of capitalism and how to resist it through cultural production. So for me, it's writing poetry, and for you, it's um, you know like painting and film, and something that seems like it's kind of a bridge between you and I is this idea of slowing down to digest meaning um, and that we also s draw a lot of strength from our ancestors in doing that. Um, and so, I mean, my question is, how did you arrive um, at these questions for yourself? Is there a particular moment you can recall where you took an interest in it or was it a little bit more abstract than that? Mm. Yeah, so... Thank you for sending your dissertation through. I haven't gotten through it quite yet completely, but I did start it. Um, I'm so happy that we've connected. Um, I love the epigraph at the beginning that is, we are now nothing but satellites, soft darkness. Um, Alabiso Cahill Grayson, or Grayson Alabiso Cahill, mm -hmm. uh, in Words and Parades is the book. Yeah. And then I think that you've also added the part that I really love as well, but our shadow remains in slowness and indecision, in words and parades, in a glance still capable of holding contempt and in a dream left undreamt. And then dedicated to all peasants. Um, so yeah, there's an alignment that you and I seem to have with periphery knowledge, ways of being and dreams that have been oppressed. So we're, I think, both interested in groups of people that are still alive though so post peasantry or like post serfs or the working class yeah um and this category is intersectional i believe that it extends to many other groups um so the dominant imperialist forces that damn our knowledge make up little percentage of the population however they often use the tactic of divide and conquer um but yeah um, the exhibition text written by Dr. Lauren Fournier for my exhibition for the fear, Celestalgic Synchronicities in 2021, was titled Post-Peasant Protest. So hearing the part where you said dedicated to all peasants and this post-peasant protest, I definitely think that there's a similar spirit 
Um, the beginning of this research for me uh, was with my own dissertation um, in my Master of Fine Arts degree at the Glasgow School of Art. It's published now with Cayette Journal, which is an amazing thematic arts publication out of Bucharest, Romania. Um, it, it might be actually really nice for you to connect with them. Um, I think that you a lot of what they publish you would resonate with. Um, they've been super supportive of my writing. Um, my dissertation was titled, Our Ancestors Exist as a Reliquary of Whispers. It took form as a photo essay um, between Kulai, Ukraine and Parkerview, Saskatchewan. And so the photo essay, I did use both archival and self-taken photos where I did memory walks, both physically through fields and I guess through photo albums. Um, and so the epigraphs that I chose for mine, I'm just going to share because I think that they're really related to, yeah, for the peasants. Um, so the first quote is from a book called Peasant Art of Subcarpathian Russia, which was published in 1926 that I found in the University of Glasgow Library. And it's a beautiful book. However, they are talking about Ukraine when they say Subcarpathian Russia. Um, and the quote is, like wheat, drop it in the soil, leave it undisturbed, and it comes springing up a hundredfold. So it was in these peasant cultures. But for us today, the soil is turned over once a week. It must indeed be a terrific, hardy seedling that can come to fruition. So when you asked me about my interest in using kind of peasant art as a way to counteract um, capitalist accelerationism, I'm reading this quote from 1926 and they're already seeing it. And I think kind of the fact that this idea of using that to counteract has been going on for over 100 years is, it just makes me want to continue that project, I think. Um, so the dissertation that I wrote kind of became in a way like a score for my studio following it. And so I wrote the dissertation and then everything that I learned from it has become what I make work from now. Um, my mother and my friend Olia were two women that I walked with and interviewed for the dissertation. And that's because it really honestly came from me reading a lot of theory at school and being often kind of in a way shocked that some of the same ideas were so present in both but they were written in a more academic way versus me just talking with these two women. Um, they were both the first generation to leave their family farms. So that's kind of where their intersection is. Um, I always find that they're really kind of like quite patient people. They prioritize food. Um, however, they're both really calm and understanding. And I was trying to find these links between their worldviews and what those were was this intentionality of slowing down and a deep reverence for both land and ancestors, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier with animism. Um, so yeah, I think for both of us, we grew, up, we grew up during late capitalism. So I think that to me, it's just learning this past knowledge as a way to remedy it by just kind of halting or coming to a stop. Um, and I'm, yeah, slowing down is really hard. I'm not perfect either. You know, we have so much on our plates. Um, but yeah, I guess there's also 
this thing that wraps into it that's against toxic individualism and there's something about folk art that there's something that ties it, them together cross-culturally um and so there's something about yeah like kind of like fighting markets that kind of goes on in the work as well um yeah i i guess um yeah i mean yeah, there's kind of like the other thing that i think and i critique this in my own practice a lot is like there's something about folk culture that is not just about the actual work but it's about like congregations and maybe that's what you and i are doing right now is we're like finding congregation mm -hmm. but i think that's something that gets lost in late capitalism is this like individualization if you don't fit into my cookie cutter mold of what my friends are supposed to look like like you can't be here and that's i think really toxic and i that's kind of why i started making video work because it's a place where i can work with other people like the last film i made i worked with a director of photography a musician all these amazing people that run the costumes at scottish opera um i worked at you know have to like plan spaces and props and it just makes it like I, it makes the work become communal mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more than solo artist in the studio because i think that part of peasant life was like working for the better of a community yeah i mean it was almost impossible to achieve anything on your own as an individual i think that when you get down to the brass tacks of what it means to farm um you it's it's very difficult to do on your own so you do it with others you do it with animals um yeah it's it's hard to plow a field in one day all by yourself so. <laughs> Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. um, well, another aspect of your work that feels important in the context of what we're discussing is the revival of uniquely Ukrainian traditions and the ways that they affirm a uniquely Ukrainian identity. Um, has your Ukrainian identity always featured prominently in your work? Um, it has. Um, yeah, it definitely has always been there um i think that my most recent film is a little bit more obviously ukrainian or like linked to the history of ukraine and ukrainian pacifism which is in line with the recent invasion of ukraine i think it was the moment where i was like i think that i have to make this work right now um or else i will feel irresponsible mm. um and so before that i was i think i was much more interested in environmental concerns kind of in line with ukrainian folk knowledge and practices um, so yeah, uh, instead of being interested in healing or providing places for rest for those experiencing environmental anxiety, the work has now shifted to trying to care, carry culture and archives. And maybe there needs to be a place of rest for people that are actually coming from Ukraine, because again, um, yeah, I think that I, I think about the fact often that I am Ukrainian Canadian and I have certain privileges that people who come from Ukraine don't have. Um, I'm the first person to study at university. Um, so people who came before me didn't have the same educational background and I've never experienced what it feels like to live in a country that is war-torn either. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I think that there's definitely like a sense of shame that I think is always like woven into being Canadian as well. I think with colonization in this country that 
is part of that shame, but then also it has informed me a lot having read around in the histories of Indigenous people in Canada and kind of ways to talk about that or ways to repair that or not that it's ever been completely repaired, um, but, you know, ideas that kind of surrounded truth and reconciliation, um, I think do inform me with ways that I can talk about what's going on in Ukraine right now. Like, I think I have a privilege because I taught at a place called the Mackenzie Art Gallery, which is actually the leading art gallery for Indigenous art in Canada um, for like almost 10 years. I, my first degree was in arts education. And so I do really carry that in my practice. And so I think having worked there is like why I always felt like I was allowed to talk about my culture in my practice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the very first work that I made that had my culture wrapped into it was in 2012. Um, I kind of looked back at my archive before our conversation today, and it was called Impositions. And I made it while I studied at Concordia in Montreal. And it's images, like photographs of my from my family archive. In, and they are like, yeah, the same size as an archival photograph, so reproductions of those in uh, photo embossment. And I went to the library at Concordia and found these economic books that had um, disinformation in them. So they were like showing um, agricultural graphs and charts that, as if Ukraine was producing grain properly during the time where Holodomor was actually happening. Mm -hmm. So propagandist. And to me, those probably shouldn't be in a library anymore because they're not. And I actually just I mean, at that age, this is also 10 years ago. I don't know if I would do this today, but I actually ripped out some of these pages and collaged them into my work. Um, that was year one uh, printmaking class at Concordia. So I think, yeah, um, my work has always had Ukrainian themes, but I've done it through different lenses. Um, I also made a series called The Dead Leap of Starving with Mouths Full of Love in 2014, which is when the Ukrainian war started. Um, I think it's important to bring that up just because I think that this recent invasion feels like it's the beginning of something, but it's not. Um, it's been going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that that series actually, I won this fine art competition from the Polish consulate of Canada, and they flew me to Poland, and I went to Warsaw, Dangst, and Watch. Um, and that was kind of to celebrate their own, um, their solidarity with Ukraine and also their own independence. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those works were really representational. Like they're like collage works with, yeah, the, my work now is, it feels a lot, like it like visually looks different, but I think it's always been about the same themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the annexation. I think that's what you're referring to, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Um, because I remember how excited I was about Maidan in Ukraine. As someone who's um, from Belarus and goes there very often, I always felt like if it was possible for Ukraine, then it would be possible for Belarus too. Like I drew a lot of strength and encouragement from the resistance that I saw in Ukraine and still do today. I think that there is um, there there is similarities between Belarus and Ukraine and them fighting for their sovereignty. They're just in 
starting from different places? Yeah, I think that, yeah, I mean, the wars, I, we don't have, it's on, It's honestly, like, unspeakable. It's really difficult to talk yeah. about. Um, yeah. I was I was actually, though, thinking the other day that in a more positive way, just because of being somebody who's researched Ukrainian culture for, like, over a decade, it used to be a lot harder to find information about Ukraine. Like, honestly, as somebody who went to university and tried to find this information, often I would find myself deep in books that were about Russian culture, trying and like trying to find mention of Ukraine. Like, actually, I think they're talking about subcarpathian Russia, which I think is technically Ukraine. However, the one thing is I have seen like so much light shed on cultural producers that are contemporary, like musicians, artists. I've connected with so many people over Instagram, like that live in Ukraine. It's amazing. And I just think that there's, way more information about the difference between Russian and Ukrainian culture. And I just don't think that that was really as present before. And like, I'm learning things too, because I was raised in the West. For example, the other night I was at a friend's who collects books um, and he has first editions of the Master and Margarita, Bulgakov, Mm -hmm. all three of them actually. So the British English translation, American English translation and the Russian English translation. They all have different covers that are amazing. Mm. However, I was with my friend Olya, who's from Ukraine, and a couple of days later, we were talking about about it, and she told I didn't realize this, but she said that she's it's really difficult for people like her to watch Westerners celebrate authors like Bulgakov, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy because these were authors that were widespread in the West because politically they were actually quite like incited with more like right-wing Russian ideas about oppressing or like not oppressing, but like joining the cultures. So like making them one and one unit whole, um, which I had no idea about. It made me so sad. I actually, this month was actively seeking out Bulgakov because he wrote a few books that are about Kiev during a war. And yeah, I I actually just, I didn't even question it. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I'm constantly learning as well. I think that's a positive part of war is it makes people like celebrate their culture mm-hmm. and come together, I guess. In defiance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've heard similar things about this, um, like great literary tradition that really overshadowed more regional iterations. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, like you said, like nothing is black and white, the same authors that write about, um, you know, like the importance of self-reflection, guilt, shame, um, uh, you know, with the example of Dostoevsky, like he wrote so much about your morality as an individual and how that's something that you have to face, um, for, for yourself and own for yourself and make your own decisions. But, um, the same authors that could kind of thrive in the atmosphere of like Bolshevism and the Soviet Union had to align themselves to those parties. And you can't like divorce that either you know the the artist is the art I know that some people try to separate the two but I don't agree with that at all um so yeah it's um it's it's uh I think for everyone to decide what what they then make of those artists you know yeah yeah it's it's tricky it might be even into like based on work by work as well, because 
I read Master and Margarita, like, again, during COVID, and I don't, I feel like that's such a fantasy novel. Like, I, I don't find it very political at all, but maybe it actually is. Um, yeah, basically, when she told me this, I was so shocked that I was just like, oh, my gosh, I have to, I really have to learn to question everything. And then I was reading about, I don't know if you've ever come across the term agitprop before, which mm-hmm. is like propaganda and agitation married together. And it was actually like enforced by the Soviet Union. And yeah. they would like have agitprop trains that would go to villages that had like used artists' work to, yeah, send their messages. And so I think reading that, I just didn't realize how organized they were in Eastern Europe when it came to propaganda. Um, Mm. And then I guess with these literary traditions, the ones that are more widespread had to go through a similar process where it was decided whether they adopted the values and beliefs of the party. And yeah. 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 Or whether or not they would be censored. Yeah. I feel like I'm learning so much about the Soviet era especially like I think for you maybe it's quite different because your family is still based there but my family left before the Soviet era they left in the early 1900s Mm. so similar to a lot of other cultures in Canada I am from like an incubated version of Ukrainian culture um, which in some ways is interesting it because it like what the parts that my family knows maybe there's parts that survived a bit more strongly because they did get to be incubated. Um, Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, another question that I wanted to ask you that's kind of connected to this is if there are any challenges or barriers about making work about Ukrainian identity from abroad. I think we touched on it, but I, you know, just want to ask more directly. Do you feel like Um, there's any challenges or... Yeah. Um, I guess from our conversation, <laughs> what I'm gathering is it's more about your Ukrainian Canadian identity, and that the two are quite connected. It's not. It's not just the one or the other. Yeah, I think that, like you said at the beginning of our conversation, actually, I questioned a lot why I was interested in this to begin with, or why anyone would care. And I think that forming identity is really important, but I think there's also something about forming identity and being super honest about that. Like, it's like I'm, like I'm, I consider myself Ukrainian, but born in Saskatchewan on Treaty 4 territory, um, based in Scotland. And I think Scottish people say that if you live there for eight months, you are Scottish. So, um, and, but I was, I feel like I grew up in Montreal because I was in Montreal from the age of 22 until 28. So I'm kind of a Francophile as well. Like I really love French culture. And there's also this crossover of French culture and Eastern European culture because so many refugees ended up in, in France during the war. So there's a lot of Eastern European artists that if you go there, you can see their work in the galleries. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about kind of like this eclectic forming of identity that is really interesting and important to talk about. Um, I think the idea of like forming a nationhood that's purist is just like so scary. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I do think that like, I don't really think I have a lot of challenges. I feel really lucky and like privileged to be able to 
be safe and talk to you. Um, I think more about artists that are coming from Ukraine or other war-torn countries like Afghanistan or Iran. Um, I think, yeah, there's, is it, um, there's a really good organization called Artists at Risk that kind of has a lot of opportunities for artists that are kind of actually going through war right now. Um, and I thought that was a really nice way to talk about how, because I think there's been a lot of chat about how there's more light shone on Ukraine because it's more in, in relation to the West. And so I'm really happy to see that people are trying to have intersectional conversations, basically, because I feel really intersectional in my own identity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's, it sounds like there's a lot of hyphens in your identity and there's, <laughs> yeah. there's also a lot of hyphens in mine. I think that um, maybe my parents' generation, great-grandparents' generation, there was a lot less, they weren't nomads in the same way. There was a lot more groundedness, whereas for me, like I've already, I've immigrated multiple times in my own lifetime. So, um, and so it's like trying to hold all of that at the same time, I think isn't always easy, but like you said, the alternative is just being like aggressively attached to nationality. And I, I don't necessarily think that that's um, the future. Like, I don't see that that's how tenable that would be. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's this kind of divide between restorative and reflective nostalgia that's written about by Svetlana Boim. And I think that really like, to me, I read that when I was on my MFA, and for me, it was like the answer to what we're talking about, like answering the question of why do I care about nationhood and like what does nationhood mean? And restorative nostalgics are the type that look back and try to fully reconstruct the past in all of its like horror, and that can be kind of more of this yeah like scary type. Um, and I think for some groups of people, restorative nostalgia is better for them but for a lot of people like I think Afrofuturists talk about that like nostalgia for a lot of people who suffered in the past is like actually like really terrifying mm -hmm. um, whereas re reflective nostalgia is to kind of look at the past in like a sideways way like looking at old family photos or looking at parts of the past that didn't really make it into the history book mm -hmm. um, yeah so kind of like yeah, projects that kind of surround things that are more tacit or more like, I mean, often we're female as well. I feel like gender is like a huge part of history that is missing as well. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think looking backwards um, is useful for me in very specific ways, like you're saying. Like, I think about the things that mattered to my family and what goodness might be lost that I could still hold on to and recreate. Like um, a big one for them was probably their faith because it was repressed. Um, and so I find it very interesting that they, th A, thought it was valuable enough to hold on to even though everything around them told, told them that it wasn't and that it was dangerous to do so. And how today I'm like seeing a similar turn is there's kind of a dis, um, disinterest to spirituality but yeah, like it's a, it's personal. It's not uh, that has a lot less to do with nationality and everything to do with like just yourself as an individual. Definitely, yeah. I've been like talking with my friends 
about this or like a few other artists and when i go to a new city i actually go i always want to go to the church like i always want to go to the ukrainian churches or like if there's an oratory montreal's like the saint joseph's oratory is amazing with the shriveled heart or like the pickled heart in it um, and growing up though like i made a very clear decision as a child to not go to church like i told my parents that i didn't want to because i didn't believe in organized religion and i still don't however it's important to remember those spaces are made by architects and artists with like their their task is to create a spiritual space for us to feel like uplifted or have a moment of transcendence so yeah. i think the draw to those kinds of spaces is really human and like inside of all of us i think it's just some of the politics that surrounded the control and power within the religions which is more human or like the people inside of the church that are the problem yeah. yeah there's this amazing art installation um is it uh, i can't remember that it might be sophie cal actually it's at the national gallery in ottawa and it's the reconstruction of a chapel that used to exist there and it's a sound work so back to like the power of audio and each speaker is an individual singer from like um like a mono voiced choir like old medieval singing um and it's so beautiful like i didn't want to leave the room like if you walk around it feels like you get closer to each individual singer or if you stand back you hear every all the power in congregation and yeah i think there is a return to kind of that like hymnal music and mm. there's a really, i think we need it there's a collectivity to it that like you said feels really lost in our individual individualistic society that's um there's something really beautiful that happens when you have voices harmonized together like you don't necessarily need to be a good singer but if you sing in a choir everyone's voice is uplifting one another and something very transformative happens yeah and it's like it gives you a place to rest as well like i'm just thinking about this idea of eastern european kind of like rest and i think that's what the church gives us but there's also this um i don't know if you've come across his work his name is mladen stilinovic he was a like, soviet nonconformist artist i believe from czechoslovakia i might have his i think he's czech but he has this really good piece of writing called in the praise of laziness and then a series of photographs just documenting himself like laying in bed mm. and it's like a good artist is a lazy artist and he was talking about capitalism like in in that and then there's also Chantal Ackerman has like yeah. a work about the lazy woman and Malevich wrote about laziness as the truth of mankind um yeah. and there's something about it about the like letting the body rest and those artist statements that I think that they're actually talking about the same thing as going to church honestly. It's like Sunday is the day of rest. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now it's interesting what you said about um like I too from an early age was not supportive of organized religion um which was a you know like a point of conflict between me and my grandmother who loved going to church and she sang in the choir in her local church and I would go and hear her sing it was really beautiful but otherwise like for myself I was like oh I see a lot of um contradictions I can't resolve a lot of hypocrisy a lot of misogyny that I can't like 
in good conscience as a young woman, I don't like I can't embrace these ideas and attitudes. And yet I just like you will go and sit in a church because today it's the only place where I can go and it's quiet and no one's there and no one's trying to sell me anything. And it's just like me with my thoughts, which is quite a rare thing today is to just not be accosted by anything or anyone or noise or like any kind of interference. It's just you're sitting in silence. And it's such an important thing to have in your life is just that solitude. Definitely agree. Um, well, I also wanted to ask you uh, if there are any artists whose work you find really empowering or important today that you'd want to share or recommend to our listeners. Mm. Yeah, I, I thought of a few. I'm sure I'm forgetting. Like, I'll always, I feel like there's so many amazing artists. It's so hard to choose. I think connecting, though, to what we're talking about with church and the power of sound, I think of Taryn Simon's Morning Project. Taryn Simon is, I mean, one of my favorite artists, but also that project in particular I thought was so powerful at um, congregating um, morning people who know how to do morning songs globally and then bringing them together. And then the work kind of became also about how to get visas globally for people to get to London and New York. and. I thought that was really powerful and it went online during COVID. So it was, yeah, broadcasted digitally. Um, yeah, I guess other living artists, I love Yasmina Sibic's work. I think that I'm interested in archives and have always been interested in ways that artists can, it's sustainable as well, I think, to kind of look at, look at archives and things that already exist and try to parse out new meaning for them. Um, I think it's probably easy to say that the artist that's been the most inspirational for me has always been Ilya Kabakov, though. Mm, like, yeah. I just, every time I visit that website of Amelia and Ilya, there's some, like, a puzzle or a game that he's created that just completely, like, sits with me for weeks. And I, I just think that he's really important. Um, his total installation environments are, you know, like, canonized Um and I think he really brought like Eastern Europeanness to the West in a way that even Soviet Russia couldn't like celebrate. They didn't because he was a nonconformist artist, like was an illustrator, and then brought in some of these ideas of escapism. And mm. I think that yeah, because he was a nonconformist, it's probably clear that they didn't want to celebrate him. But then the man who flew to space from his apartment was so celebrated. So. I guess they kind of, they can't hide that. Um, Had to acknowledge it, his success. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I also wanted to mention two artists that I'm really excited about in Montreal, just because we're doing a, a radio show there. Um, I really admire A.M. Yeldo's work. So I think, yeah, she graduated really recently, I think last year from Concordia and is looking forward to a residency at Foundry Darling. Um, I curated some of her video work in Glasgow at the CCA and yeah, I've, I've kind of always been interested in her practice. She's Iranian and thinks around a lot of ideas about like diasporic imagination and absurdity or humor um, as well alongside kind of this world building project. So there's kind of this like intimacy 
and seriousness beside playfulness. And I think she does that really well. I can't, I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of her residency. Um, and yeah, there's also Mara Eagle, who's a video artist who will be showing at FOFA soon. Um, I think it's called the Momenta Biennale. Mm. And yeah, I think that work is just super honest. Um, she comes from an Ashkenazi background and like really is like uncompromising in the work. And I think if you're a woman, it's like, yeah, really connective. And she uses tech, like she's super talented with technology, which I love um, as well. Um, Great. So yeah, you. those were some that I want I can mention for now, but yeah, I'm definitely forgetting many. Okay. Um, one thing I wanted to say to you is that I added a bunch of songs to the playlist. I saw. Yes, yeah, two thank you. Ago. Thank you. I actually like realized that the um, collective that I was in, we like kind of did thematic radio shows and one of them was actually kind of like healing sounds. So I was kind of like, wow, I really need to stop myself from adding more to this. So Feel I'm free. sorry that it might look really overwhelming that I put so many on in like an hour, but it's because I this whole year, like, I don't know what happened. Like, I used to listen to music that was quite, like, aggressive and, like, quite upbeat and was really into, like, noise and punk music always. But this whole year, I've just listened, like, it's like I have a chapel in my studio or something. Like, mm -hmm. lots of ambient stuff. Um, I saw Sarah Devachi, actually, when I was in Montreal, and she's kind of, like, a musicologist that is she's doing a PhD right now and it's kind of on the way that reverberation can affect our bodies. Mm -hmm. And I went to the show, first of all, I was definitely like the youngest person there. There was like, yeah, it felt like a very like older crowd and I was like, whoa, I've never been to a show like this. Um, and it totally put everyone in a trance. Like I opened my eyes and looked around close to the end and like everyone was like catatonic. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that music is like truly like, yeah, very effective. Definitely. Um, I had a similar experience. Uh, it wasn't just the last year. I want to say it was kind of at the start of the pandemic. I went through like a dancing at home techno phase. And then yeah. all I listened to was like experimental jazz and very calming mm -hmm. music for the last two years, pretty solidly. Um, yeah, I think I'm just trying to like keep my nervous system relaxed like it's already yeah. too it's too I'm too stimulated at all times so music for me has mm -hmm. been something that I kind of look to to I don't know regulate my nervous system if that makes sense definitely yeah I definitely get that um I mean we're kind of like barraged with images and like sounds and words and Mm. ideas like so much all day long so yeah it is kind of nice to have rest I'm interested I wonder if there is kind of like yeah and like not just between you and I an interest in ambient music again I feel like it's kind of like a thing mm. that has a bit of a comeback right now yeah um, that would be an interesting poll to take for radio totally. listeners like yeah yeah you know what what kind of genres what kind of tempos and beats per minute are you feeling mm -hmm. right now Okay, well, for my last question, do you have anything coming up that you want to share? Um, yeah, I'm actually, so I'm going to share the film that is on view at Panchet right now, so it will have a UK premiere. And it's a little bit different, though, than the way that we showed it 
in Montreal. Um, I've worked, I'll be working with um, David Dale Gallery, so I'll be showing it there. And I'm really excited actually because we're going to be collaborating with the Dovshenko Center in Kiev mm -hmm. to be able to actually screen the original Kiev frescoes um, by Perzhenov. So the film is actually made very much in relation to that film. So it was a lot of the footage was lost because it was decided that it was too pacifist. Um, and so my film kind of imagines a film canister that's found, um, but made by a woman. So there's a lot of kind of parts of the original that I am commenting on. So without having it beside it, it can be hard to know mm. those. Mm. And yeah, I think we'll do like an artist talk and it'll be a really nice welcome back to the city. So sorry, where will that be? That'll be in... Uh... In Glasgow, yeah. Glasgow at, at what space and on what date? Um, it's called David Dale Gallery. Um, and the date is at the end of August. We haven't actually set the exact date yet, but it will be around that time. Okay, well, anyone interested can follow the gallery and for that announcement. Well, thank you so much, Ayla. Yeah, thank you. I really like feel really heard and connected with you. So thank you. It's also really important for me to think around a lot of the questions you asked so a pleasure well hopefully our conversation doesn't end here maybe there's going to be a another return yeah definitely
by Mickey and Bunny, a Ukrainian country duo from Manitoba in 1964. A big thank you to Ayla for a wonderful interview. You can find past episodes of In the Weeds, an artist interview series, at ragweed.info. Directions on how to use your radio. Find the power button. Turn it to on. Turn the knob to CKUT. 90.3 FM. Relax and enjoy.
Shut 